Welcome to another episode of Orion Open Science Podcast. I'm Emma Harris. I'm Luisa Bengtsson. And we're broadcasting to you from Berlin, Germany. Today's guest is Mark Abrahams, and I'm sure most of you know him. Yeah. Well, if you know Ig Nobel Prize, then you know Mark Abrahams. Yeah, he's the founder and the host of the annual ceremony. Mm-hmm. And he is super funny. And last month no it was like two months ago he was actually in berlin and he gave um, a presentation talk here in um well quite large venue which was quite packed as well and that's why i met him and asked him to um be the guest on our show and uh, luckily he agreed and well the result is coming now for uh, the discovery of homosexual necrophilia in the mallard duck. Yes. The incident, famous incident, occurred on June 5th. Every year on June 5th, there is a celebration at the spot where it happened. How? How do people celebrate? Don't tell me. <laughs> oh, I'm happy you asked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, This happened, the incident happened at the Natural History Museum in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. And now every year on the anniversary, the scientist who witnessed it and who took notes and photographs and eventually published a paper about it and won an Ig Nobel Prize and who is now director of the Natural History Museum, they reenact the incidents of the day. They have talks. And uh, other people, other scientists come in, have little talks. The public comes. When they're finished, then everybody's invited to walk a short distance into the city where they have a nice meal, a six-course duck dinner at a Chinese restaurant. (laughs) Okay, but those ducks were not molested before. They just died for the meal, right? (laughs) Well. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Oh my goodness, that's hilarious! Uh, it, it's uh, it's quite cool. So uh, basically, the Nobel Prize um, also created um, like a new festivity occasion, kind science of. communication opportunity, right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, this is actually it's what true. We, this is actually what we want to talk to you. But usually, we ask the people to introduce themselves first. But so. we're just gonna, I think, broadcast it exactly like that because it's. The best opening we've ever had to a show. <laughs> ever. I don't know if it can ever. No. Ducks are reliable. You can count on them to help you one yeah. way or another. <laughs> um, so, yeah, if you would just like to introduce yourself um, and say a little bit about your work, that would be great. Thanks. Sure. My name is Mark Abrams. I edit a magazine called Annals of Improbable Research which is all about research that makes people laugh and then think. These are real things. And some of the most spectacular real things that make people laugh and then think are awarded prizes every year. They're awarded Ig Nobel Prizes. I started the Ig Nobel Prize ceremony back in 1991. Mm -hmm. And how did you um, kind of come up with that as an idea? I mean, the journal and the the prize. I mean, what got you interested in this stuff? 
I've always been interested in this stuff since I was a little kid <laughs> and, and things that are things that are so unexpected that they make you laugh. And then they're, they're so unexpected that you, you, you have to think about them and, and you want to pay attention to them and find out more. Mm-hmm. That's what, that's what everything I do is about. In 1990, I um, somewhat unexpectedly became the editor of a science magazine. That happened because at that point, I I had a small software company at that point. That's what I was mostly doing professionally. I was wondering whether I might be able to get something published somewhere. So I'd always liked collecting things and writing things, but I had not tried to get anything published. So I sent some of my writing off to a magazine. And a few weeks later, got a telephone call from a man who said, hello, I'm the edit- um, Hello, I'm the publisher of the journal. We got your articles. Would you be the editor of the journal? <laughs> wow. Okay, that's the American dream. That's yeah, and it was, it was an old magazine had been started in the 1950s by two scientists and then had a very strange history and had been bought and sold and all that point was owned by a British publisher of science journals. And I could not say no. (laughs) So I I did that and I was running my little software company for about five years and things got so overwhelmingly busy that at that point I had to make a decision. And although I really enjoyed the software stuff I was doing, which I, I think is is also very interesting. I, I could not continue doing both. So I've been doing this, the magazine and the Ig Nobel. And that very first year when I was editing the magazine, I kept meeting all kinds of people around the world who had done very strange things that were funny and really unexpected and thought-provoking. And I kept thinking that most of these people will live their entire life and then they will die, and almost nobody will know what they did. And that's wrong. Somebody should do something. And I thought, well, we can do something small. And so we did. And I started telling people the idea for this ceremony, and every well, felt like everybody I talked to wanted to be helpful. Um, and uh, got introduced to somebody at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Uh, who said, oh, would you like to have it here? So, sure, we had a nice place to have it. Uh, I had, in that first year, I was meeting lots of scientists and lots of other people, so I invited a few of the people I had interviewed to come help the ceremony for people who had Nobel Prizes and seemed to have a sense of humor about themselves, and they all said yes. So they all came. um, We picked some winners. Uh, We put a little notice on the internet, which was much smaller in those days, saying that the first annual Ig Nobel Prize ceremony will happen on whatever the date was at MIT. You'll need tickets, but this first year the tickets are free, and the tickets will become available Tuesday afternoon at noon at 12 o'clock. And at that time, noon at 12 o'clock, whenever it was, Hundreds of people showed up, so all the tickets disappeared. And uh, the night of the ceremony, we had 
far more people than would fit in the building trying to get in there. We had these famous scientists. We also had a lot of journalists from around the world, some of them from some of the big science journals and from uh, the the, um, wire services for general news and all sorts of things. And it it really went pretty well. The, the whole night, all of us were looking around. And I mean, all of us were looking at each other and thinking at any moment now, some grown-up person is going to walk into this room and tell us to stop this and go home. But nobody did. <laughs> so, And it got a lot of attention around the world in the press. So we were very lucky that all these things happened to work out so well that first year. And because we were so lucky, because these things worked out so well, the next year we were able to do it on a much bigger scale. And that continued. The fifth year, we moved it down the street from MIT to Harvard, and that's where it's been ever since. This year, in 2019, it's going to be the 29th first annual Ig Nobel Prize ceremony. That will be on uh, September 12th. We will, as usual, be webcasting it live. Anybody can watch the webcast free. The first year we webcast it was in 1995, the year we moved it to Harvard. And we pretty much invented webcasting then. There, there wasn't any such thing. We did it for a practical reason. When we moved it, we were worried that we would have angry people who were not able to get tickets to fit into the, the building at Harvard. So I asked around whether we could somehow send a television signal across the street to the big science lecture hall in in a building across the street. I met with some computer science graduate students, and and one of them said, well, I think we can send a TV signal over the Internet so we don't have to to lay any wire under the street because the wires for the Internet are already there. So, okay, so they put together some equipment, and we did, and that that was one of the first things ever webcast. Wow. The Ig Nobel ceremony over the years has been many things. It's uh, it's a circus. It's a celebration. It's an awards ceremony. It's, it's all kinds of things. And it's also been a nice little uh, sort of accidentally a laboratory to try out new technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but, Mark, I mean, when you talk about we were lucky to be so successful the first year, I yeah. mean, you know, luck is very... Uh, well, yeah, subjective or random term. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there is something called you know lucky happenstance, for example. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you make mm-hmm. things, you make things that then appear being luck. So, what do you think was it actually? Well, I think it was two things. One is we were all work. We all wanted this very much to happen. So, all of us were working very hard to try to um, improve our luck. <laughs> But we we were lucky, uh, especially in the first years. There were some people who thought that what we were doing was really bad for the world, very destructive. They just assumed that if there's something funny and it's about science, that it must be attacking science somehow. It must be trying to say that science is stupid and scientists are stupid and anyone who cares about science is stupid um, which is stupid. <laughs> so that, well, it's just wrong. But that the first couple of years, we did encounter many people, and some of them were very famous older scientists 
who simply assumed anybody who was doing anything funny about science was attacking science. When I say that we were lucky, I mean, we're lucky that none of those people tried to stop us. Because mm-hmm. it would have been very easy for some of them to stop us. Even uh- now, I occasionally I run into people like that who do, who are in a position to stop things. Mm. I think that's very sad, but uh, you know, one of the things I hope that we, one of the influences that, that I hope we have a little bit at least on the world is getting people when they notice something and laugh at it and then pay attention to develop the habit a little bit that when you see something that seems strange Do not assume that that means it's bad or wrong. Do not assume it's good either. Don't assume it's right. Just you do not have to assume anything. You can spend a few moments looking at it and thinking about it and asking some questions and then make your decision. So one of the things that I was thinking about a bit is that the examples for the ignoble prices, I mean, the the well, the research that got the Nobel Prizes, it also falls mm-hmm. in the category of, you know, actually people that do attack science, they would go like, yeah, and this is what you spend public money for. This mm-hmm. is, you know, unnecessary. Yeah, I mean, that necrophilia and homosexual necrophilia, right? Um, like, who cares, right? I mean, there are so many more pressing problems in the world. Why do you spend money on something like that? Um, and I wonder what are your thoughts on that? Have you, have you encountered this? And if yes, uh, what kind of strategy or what do you say to these people? Oh, yeah. I encounter that all the time. Um, many things to say about one about the Ig Nobel Prizes. Most of the things that have won Ig Nobel Prizes were things people did by themselves. They weren't spending somebody else's money. Sometimes they were spending somebody else's money. And they were trying, usually, they were trying to do something that makes a lot of sense if you bother to pay any attention and ask why they were doing it. Sometimes not. The Ig Nobel Prizes are unusual because almost every other prize in the world is for the very best something. You only get this prize if you're the best. There are a few prizes for the worst. The Ig Nobel Prizes are not like that. We don't care whether the thing is good or bad. I mean, for purposes of choosing the prize, we do not care. We do not care whether it is important or trivial. And in fact, most things, if you have to be honest about it, it's not possible to make that decision immediately. The whole history of science and and pretty much the whole history of technology, too. And this, I think, these angry questioning people um, might enjoy thinking about this. The whole history of science and technology, if you talk to the people who really invented something or discovered something, or if you read in detail about what happened in the very earliest stage, almost always, the people around them say, you're wrong. There's no point in your spending time doing that. That's a foolish idea. Everybody knows that's a foolish idea. That's the first step almost always. Why would you do research on something where everybody already knows it? That's not research. Research is trying to understand something that nobody understands yet. 
maybe you're going to fail. And, you know, that's too bad, but humans fail a lot. And if you don't try, you're not going to succeed. You know, you have to fail some a number of times and get lucky occasionally and succeed. Um, with a lot of the things that have won Ig Nobel Prizes, when we offer the prize to people, that is the first moment when they realize that what they have done is funny. I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you an example or two, and then I, I, I'd like to, to talk about that for a moment also. We gave a prize, the Ig Nobel Physics Prize, one year to a team of scientists who had published a paper in a research journal. The paper is called An Analysis of the Forces Required to Drag Sheep Across Various Surfaces. An Analysis of the Forces Required to Drag Sheep Across Various Surfaces. Almost anybody hears that title or sees that title, and it's funny. We call the scientists and offer them the prize. That's what we almost always do. We offer the prize and let people say no if they want to. Most people say yes. Those scientists knew about the Ig Nobel Prize. So they were very happy. They said yes immediately. But that phone call was the first moment any of them realized what they'd done is funny. Those scientists are in Australia. They're in a part of Australia where sheep is a big industry, a very big industry. And the local industry there had uh, called in a group of scientists and asked them to look at everything that happens in this industry and analyze it and tell them, how can we do better? How can we make more money? How can we be more efficient? How can we cut down on the number of injuries? Because there are thousands of sheep brought into these buildings. The, the, the wool is removed with big, heavy, dangerous electric cutters. Every year, there are many injuries to the sheep and many injuries to the people who use those things. And, and people who run the industry want to have fewer injuries and make more money. So that's what the scientists did. They went, they spent a lot of time looking at everything. And one of the things that they discovered, which sounds foolish to anybody who doesn't realize why they were looking, was that in a lot of these buildings, which had grown over time, the industry grows, they add another building, they'll add a little connecting ramp between the buildings. And a lot of times these sheep were being brought into one building and then dragged uphill, up a ramp into the next building, rather than being dragged downhill. <laughs> a number of times um, I have done public events with one of the scientists from that group, and he always reaches a point where he says, he, he, he looks embarrassed suddenly, and he says, I... I, I I feel embarrassed saying this, but one of the most important things we discovered is it is easier to drag a sheep downhill. <laughs> Did I answer your question? <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That's a very helpful discovery. Yeah. I think a big part of the story uh, behind what happens when somebody asks, oh, why would somebody spend money on that? That sounds crazy. 
I think one way of, of looking at that is it does sound crazy. And uh, now please tell me about what you do for work. In fact, tell me what you do, say, on a typical Tuesday morning from 10 o'clock in the morning until 11 o'clock. I want you to tell me every little thing you do in detail. And if you do this yourself, when you start listening to the words coming out of your mouth, you begin to hear some very strange things. And you begin to remember what it was like the first day you went to work doing whatever it is you do now. You remember you went home at the end of the day and you had all kinds of stories about all the crazy things that happened and all the crazy people there. And the second day you went to work, you came home and you still had some stories, but you didn't have as many stories. And after a week or two, you go home, you don't have any stories at all. Now it's all ordinary to you. It doesn't seem crazy anymore. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> Not every moment, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> just thinking along now. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, no, I, I take the part that, yeah, if you if you take something out of context, yeah, yeah then it does sound yeah. ridiculous. Or and also, it's such, a, it's such a big world, so many people doing so many things, that how can you know the context for what other people are doing? If you happen to know them well and be in that world, yes, of course, you know an, a lot. You know more than you realize, you know. But otherwise, how can you know enough to make sense of what somebody else is doing? That's why everybody seems to be crazy, in addition to the fact that everybody is crazy one way or another. There is that. I mean, one, <laughs> one well thing put. I to ask you about was that, so you're saying about it, um, the humor making you laugh. But yeah. also kind of picking up on what you were just saying there, do you think that you can use humor to um, kind of humanize science a bit so that it's more accessible and not like these kind of guys in lab coats over there doing stuff where it's more something that's more um, something people can relate to more? Um, yes. What we're doing mostly is maybe a little different than what people might think of when when they hear the question that you just asked. Uh, we are not telling jokes. And we, I might tell a joke now and then, but that's mostly not what I do at all. And it's not what we do. All we're doing is describing what we see. It's right in front of us and it's right in front of you. You can see it too. And that's why things are funny. They're funny the things we're interested in, they're funny because they are funny. If you pay attention, if you really look at it, you know, if you spend five seconds really looking at it, there's something funny about it. There's, that's what makes it interesting. And once you're interested that way, even for five seconds, now you're paying attention. And you're paying attention to the people who are doing this. So, yeah. In that way, very much, I hope we are trying to see the humor in things and point it out to people. Mm. Do you think that you've inspired? Because ignoble, like everybody knows ignoble. I mean, at least science scientists. Oh, well, yeah. It's, you know, okay. Mm, it's nice of you to say that, but there are oh. a, a, 
awful lot of people who've never heard of this. Well, you know good people. <laughs> Okay. Yes. So, <laughs> no, but uh, seriously, I mean, yeah, most people working in science have heard of ignoble, uh, and you know, it has kind of has become kind of like cult status. You know, like people know it and people want to watch it, and you know, I mean, it's cool because it is really, it is really good. You know, it's it's really good science communication. It's amazing. Um, I wonder, just. Um, have you inspired now with, with the Ignoble Prize? Have you inspired scientists to do funny things, you think? Like to maybe go more into this, uh, you know, like to I want to have the Ignoble Prize, basically. Yeah, to somebody, a lot, we get a lot of people who do that. Um, you know, anybody can send in a nomination for an Ignoble Prize. And a lot of people do nominate themselves, they almost never win. And in a in a typical year, we get something like ten thousand new nominations. But it's very easy to see the things that people began to do because they want to win an Ig Nobel Prize, and those things never win. Um, This quality of being both funny and provoking thought. That's a really difficult thing to invent on your own if that's what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. This this double quality of making people laugh and think, that's a side effect. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. It's 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 it, it may not be a good thing to try to and it may may be pointless to try to to create these things on your own. There's no need. Almost anything you do probably has aspects that are funny and thought-provoking. And this gets at at science communication, which you're asking at. I think the main trick of communicating your science to people is finding something about what you're doing, anything, even a tiny thing, finding something that's so unusual for other people that they will pay attention to it. If it's really unusual, they might laugh at it. That's fine. They're laughing because they're surprised. You want them to be surprised. You made a discovery. (laughs) You were surprised. You want them to feel as excited as you did, don't you? And if they're laughing, that's great. What's better than laughing together at something because it makes you happy, because it makes you so curious? what's next what's your next project is there a next project like it's, yeah. uh, where is it going now with the ignoble growing well we have lots one is um i want more people to know about the ignobels and know that they can watch the ceremony know that they can um tell us to, they can nominate people you know, there are seven or eight billion people on the planet most of them are doing things that really deserve an Ig Nobel Prize, and uh, you know we only hear about ten thousand or so of them a year. So there's a lot more out there. Uh, I would like to do. I do quite a few talks in public events. And Louisa came to one, and I did. It was the first talk I ever did in Berlin, and I I had a wonderful time. Felt like I was in a big room full of new friends. Yeah, thank you for that. And I would like to do more of that. Every spring I come to Europe and do a lot of events with Ig Nobel winners. And every day uh, people send me 
science citations and papers and all kinds of things. And I have, I've been doing this for almost 30 years now. So I have a really big collection and only a few of those have yet appeared in the magazine or have won Ig Nobel Prizes. There's so many good ones. And I've been thinking about how I really want to use some of the others. And I think I know what I want to do is write a series of books on different topics about improbable research, improbable discoveries, improbable experiments that were done on particular topics. At some point, I want to find a publisher who um, has a sense of humor and is not frightened of science (laughs) and thinks that those two things can go together. Uh, This may sound like a simple thing to you, but a lot of publishers are not comfortable with science. And a lot of publishers are not comfortable with real things that are funny. Mm -hmm. And the combination is unusual as far as the publishing world is considered. Sorry, Mark. Uh, Why is that? Why do you think people are afraid of science and real, real funny science? I think it's mostly just tradition. In the early days when science was becoming science and there weren't many scientists Within any country, all of the scientists pretty much knew each other. They would get together. There weren't many of them. And if you look at the things they did and read the things they wrote, they had a lot more fun (laughs) openly than scientists. And a lot of the things they did then were funny in a way that they appreciated while they were doing it. And the writing is much more human than you will often see in science journals now. As a lot of these discoveries got to the point where people realized these are useful and these make money. Then these things began to be treated like they're very serious. Of course, they are serious and they're still funny. Mm -hmm. But as time went on, and this is especially true in my country, in the United States, here, science for a long time has always been treated as something that's very serious. And if you talk about science, it's important that you get across to people that it's very serious. So you mustn't laugh at it. No, no, no. If somebody's laughing at it, they're probably um, trying to uh, make fun of it. I mean, that's, the, that's what the tradition has become, which is, I think, very sad. Of course, most scientists do have a good sense of humor, but they, they feel they have to disguise it. And the institutions, institutions everywhere, um, you know, are, are, are in a way the worst... Uh, aspect of of the people in them, that the institutions especially must be very serious. And and so they, sometimes the institution tries to disguise the fact that it's full of people who are very human and warm and funny and clever. Actually, there is, I think with your ignoble, I think it's like, it's really on the time. It's like, you know, Zeitgeist, a bit in science communications is a lot of about, you know, scientainment. So science slams, all kinds of other science mm-hmm. entertainment formats are popping up. Um, super popular, at least, I don't know, in Berlin it's usually mm. sold out, whatever. But your event is yeah. really well, um, you know, visited. And um, I think there is something happening more towards... And yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I think if you, uh, uh, if you look at the Ig Nobel ceremony, I mean, actually watch an Ig Nobel ceremony, most of them you can watch. We have the video is up on our website and all over the web. That I think a, a lot of the things you're seeing now, these entertainment things involving science, 
partly grew out of some of the things we've been doing for 30 years. The Ig Nobel ceremony has many, many pieces to it. The main thing, of course, is when we announce the winners and you see them that come from around the world and you see the famous scientists handing the Ig Nobel prizes to them. There's a lot more. From the very beginning, we've also had people, the scientists, giving really short talks on what they're doing. And we've done lots of sort of experiments on how do you, how do you, how, how do you make it easy for a scientist or anybody else to describe to a room full of strangers what they're doing in a way that the strangers will understand and love and, and want to repeat and tell their friends about. And you've seen, um, if you've seen the ceremony, you know that one of the things we've been doing for a long time are the things we call 24-7 lectures. Mm -hmm. And we had earlier versions. Uh, the, the current version, which we've been doing for a long time because it works, is as part of the Ig Nobel ceremony, we every year invite so five or six uh, great thinkers, some famous scientists and some younger scientists who are not at all famous, to each do a 24-7 lecture about their work. And if we invite you to do a 24-7 lecture, we will agree on your topic. should be some word or phrase that most people have heard, but they may not understand. They may be intimidated. And you do two lectures. First, you give a complete description of your subject, as much detail as possible in 24 seconds. As much jargon as you can cram into 24 seconds. And we have a football referee up there timing it who will throw you off the stage if you talk too long. And then you pause and you do a second lecture when you explain it clearly in a way that anybody can understand in seven words. Uh -huh. Seven words. Quite often... It's very difficult to do that, to describe something in seven words. A lot of the people who've done it have done really good jobs. And when you do a good job, everybody knows it. And it's funny, and they remember. One of the very first ones we did, the first year we had the 24-7 lectures, which is now a long time ago, was uh, a biologist named Danny Adams. Danny is a woman, and, and uh, doing all kinds of fantastic biology work. Uh, her topic is biology. So for 24 seconds, she had so many big words that nobody, even her own colleagues, could not digest it. Then she paused and she gave her seven-word summary of biology. So here is the seven-word summary of biology by Danny Adams. If it can get infected, it's biology. Ah, brilliant. That's amazing. Really good. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. That's so good. And many of the others. We, we've now been doing five or six of those every year at the ceremony for 15 years or so. And many of those are beautiful. We've got the video of all of those up on our website, too. Even reading them, though, the seven words, when they're done well, they're beautiful. I've done a lot of variations on that. Um, often when I go out and do a talk somewhere, um, I ask them to try something different, which uh, I think worked out pretty well, which was, all right, explain your research to this room full of people. Most of them 
don't really know your research well, explain it to them in two minutes. That's difficult, but, and then explain it to them again in two minutes, some completely different way. I don't care whether you use the same words or not, but use some completely different metaphor. That's cool. And yeah, and then we had the and then we had the room kind of vote and discuss about which way is clearer. Mm-hmm. And, and then one time, one time when some some a student in the room raised his hand and said, "You know, I didn't, I did not really understand either of those." So then I asked the the scientist who done this, "Can you do it a third way?" He said, "Oh," but he did, and the third way was great, and everybody in the room decided instantly. I, this is much better. This is great. So I want to do a lot more of these. So, but so you're saying basically the second version were usually was usually much better than the very first version, right? Well, we've only done this a few times. It's just that if you, I, I back when I was a student, I would sometimes get jobs as a teaching assistant, and I, I, I like doing that, and I used to do that kind of thing to myself. That if if the people in the room don't seem to be understanding, usually it was those teaching math or physics. And if the people in the room are not understanding what I'm saying, um, it was kind of fun for me to push myself to try to think of some different, completely different way to explain, just keep trying different metaphors, anything until I could come up with something that made sense to them. Yeah. Oh, I did have one random question. Has anyone yes. won, has anyone won both the Nobel and Ig Nobel Prize? I wonder if you already know the answer to the question you just asked. Me. <laughs> yes. I feel like I should know the answer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Andre Geim won. Uh, he and uh, he's a physicist. Um, Russian originally, and then he worked in the Netherlands, and he's now at Manchester University in the UK. He and uh, another uh, physicist in Britain, Michael Berry, won an Ig Nobel Prize in the year 2000 for using magnets to levitate a frog, (laughs) which is something that almost every other physicist thought was both crazy and not physically possible. And it was not exactly new physics, but it was using some very old physics that almost nobody remembered and nobody believed anymore because nobody remembered it. They won the uh, Ig Nobel Physics Prize in the year 2000. Ten years later, in 2010, Andre Geim was given a Nobel Prize in physics for something different and it was something that sounds even more childish <laughs> when you hear how he did it. You, you, you may well have heard of the thing he, he did. He got his prize for coming up with the first useful amount of a substance called graphene, which is the two-dimensional form of carbon, which, which scientists had known for a long, long time. It exists. And they knew where it was. It's in every pencil you get. That, that gray material in the pencil is graphite, and it's billions of layers of sheets, one atom thick, that stick together of carbon. Nobody had been able to pull apart 
these sheets. They stick to each other so tightly, nobody had ever managed. Until Andre Geim and one of his students one night did it by doing something a lot of little children do. They took, let's see if I have a pencil, yes, pencil and a piece of paper and scribble on it and take some sticky tape, some scotch tape, put it on the thing, pull it up, and then just fold the tape and flex it like this. And lots of little gray bits fell out. They put those under a microscope, and a lot of those bits had little pieces of graphene. And because they had the first amounts of graphene big enough to look at under a microscope and start to to play with, they were able to start measuring some of the qualities it has. Nobody knew. Nobody could do anything about it except in their minds. And that opened up new universes, really, of things people could try. And you probably know around the world, there are lots of laboratories in lots of universities and companies devoted to exploring all these, uh, what turned out to be almost magical seeming properties of graphene and then of other substances like that once people figured out how to begin looking at this then lots of other people could be clever and figure out how to do it better and all i wonder if just one of them just maybe you probably know that so what just one of them just started doing this and the other was like oh maybe it's a good idea or basically someone started mindlessly or was it like a planned action let's try it like this <laughs> i don't know for sure but probably planned um you know, I, I know Andre, and he he made a long time ago. He decided to uh, have a hobby or habit where on Friday nights in his laboratory, he'll just try things that seem fun, crazy, foolish, and he encourages his students to do that with him. That's where both of his prize-winning things happened. Wow! He does this many Friday nights. That's a brilliant I think idea. a lot of other scientists around the world do it, but maybe they're not quite so organized that they do it all the time and insist to themselves that it's a good thing to do. We do it naturally. We don't discover anything. <laughs> we have to do it more planned. You, but let me correct you, though. You, you, may, you may have discovered many things, but you were not paying attention to what you were doing. So you, you, did, not even, you did not even pay attention to your own discoveries. Yeah. Well, you do always say that the best collaborations at the MDC come out of beer hour. We have a, a every Friday night. It's like um, a yeah. beer hour. It's yeah. kind of self-explanatory. Yeah. Um, everyone yeah. comes and drinks some beer. But I mean, that's you. You say everyone. Yeah. That's when people actually talk and go. Oh, you're working on that. Actually, I'm working on. Yeah. That. Yeah. And you could even do that in the lab. Yeah. So you have the equipment there, and you can even, if you have an idea to try some simple, quick thing with your friend because you're having fun drinking a beer and you talking about this idea, you can try it right then and there. I mean, there's a whole movement around it, right? I mean, the, the whole do-it-yourself biology or the biotinkering um, communities mm -hmm. all over the world, basically, um, just gathering, you know, in spaces outside of institutionalized labs, basically, and just trying out stuff like growing bacteria banana flavor or something like that, you know, just like... Yeah. Well, stupid things, stupid as in like, why would you do that, right? Yeah. But just for fun, yeah. it turns out also that basically people 
going there, it's, it sounds kind of like it's like, you know, men from the street kind of coming in and doing something, but it's actually mainly scientists who just don't do this kind of fun stuff in the daily work. So they go to these communities to just play around with biology, basically. So, yeah. Yes. Yes. It has merits, definitely. So I think the message is have fun with science. It's good. For, it's good for science and it's good for the people, you know, the public, as it were. Yeah. I, um, I'd maybe word that in a little different way, that it's okay to enjoy what you're doing. Uh, yeah. And maybe it's even good to enjoy what you're doing. It, it helps you stay interested. It helps you become more interested, and it helps other people become interested, including people who might want to fund what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. if, 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 if they are interested in what you're doing, they might even be a lot more eager to give you some funds to continue working on it. But if they don't understand it at all and they're, they're not truly interested and they're frightened of it, well, you know, <laughs> maybe that's not ideal. Okay, what do you remember most from talking to Mark Abrahams? I'm going to say dead ducks, obviously. I know. It's somehow it just <laughs> sticks in your head. Sheep and ducks. The dreams I'm going to have tonight are going to be super weird. Um, but it is really so cool. I mean, this, okay, realizing that dragging sheep up is harder than dragging sheep down. Sounds trivial, but so many times we're doing so many stupid things. We're just like, if you just stop and think a bit, it's yep. like, yeah, it's much easier to drag the sheep down. It is, it is. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm from Wales, so, oh. you know. So you knew that? Well, no, I mean, I, I didn't know that specifically, but I'm versed <laughs> in people being interested in sheep. So it didn't come as a, a cultural shock to me that you might want to study sheep traction. <laughs> well, you know, there's, I mean, there's one actually study. I actually wonder why she didn't get the Nobel Award. There's this woman who did the study in Wales, uh, where she realized that sheep are actually quite intelligent because they can recognize, um, like, faces. Right. And she did the research by showing the sheep, like, magazine, photos from magazine with, like, I don't know, Justin Bieber and whoever, famous, whatever. And the sheep could actually distinguish between, you know, not just real people faces, but actually even pictures. And I found quite interesting. That's very interesting. However, if a sheep gets stuck headfirst into a fence or a bush, it will stay there until it dies because it cannot work out that it needs to go backwards. Okay, but while being stuck there, it will you have show a it friendly face. <laughs> yeah, it'll recognise you while you hold the magazine in front of it while it dies of starvation stuck headfirst into a head. Yes. Okay. So clearly some parts of the brain are switched on <laughs> and other parts are not. <laughs> And, and how was the, the okay that's not research it's just no that's, that's just anecdotal yeah, yeah I literally okay. had to help my um mum in law pull a, a sheep out of a, a hedge a couple of years ago no but in all seriousness what I, I I did take away was that if you make if you accept the humor inherent in research and you don't try and be all serious all the time I think that humanizes it and makes people connect with your research a lot more. Mm -hmm. I also like this uh, this ideas of um, forcing people to explain 
what they're doing in quite absurd ways. I mean, this 24 seven, it's, it's actually quite, I mean, in, in a way it's absurd, Yeah. but it's really cool because it's absurd and it really forces you to think like, how can I explain? Yeah. I was actually thinking, can I explain what I'm doing? Seven words. I don't know. Not right now, but, um, no, I want to try. Um, uh, okay. What are we doing right now in seven words? Recording, re-recording, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> laughing. That was already four words. Does that have to be a sentence or just words? I'm not, no, I think it has to be a okay because the biology example was it was sentence. It was a sentence. Um, okay. Recording. No, I can't um, do it. I, I need to think about it. Recording conversations about things. That matter in size. Oh, that's eight words. Yeah. And it's not as catchy as biology one. No. Sorry. Well, that was a try. Anyways. You came um, up with the more science in society and more society in science catchphrase, though. Oh, that's what we're doing. We're putting more science into the society and more society into the science. Yeah. I don't know how many words that is, but... A couple too many, but... But it's catchy. It's super catchy. Okay. That was it for today. Join us in two weeks for another episode of Orion Open Science Podcast. Yep. Hosted and produced at the Max Debock Center of Molecular Medicine in Berlin. The music was written and recorded by Fabio de Miguel and the sound editing is done by Paula Olivier. So also please get in touch with us on uh, Twitter. Uh, so that's OOSP underscore Orion Pod. You can uh, follow us, message us, retweet us, whatever you want to do. And also, if you want to talk to us more directly, uh, you can email us at Orion at MDC Berlin.de. We'd love to hear from you, make suggestions about uh, who we could talk to, ask questions. Yeah, and definitely tune in in two weeks. So. Yes. So see you in two weeks. Ciao. Bye.